Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be talking about uh, a number of different things that are uh, I we talked about last week, but we I've added so much more because there are questions that come up through the network and through the people that I talk to on a regular basis, and. Uh, you know, the, there's so much misinterpretation of the New Testament, which is should be fairly cut and dry, because we know the Greek language. We know the Greek language at the time uh, that the Bible was written. The, there wasn't a lot of fooling around with the scriptures. We have pretty old copies, and then we have... Uh, old copies of other authors who were reading the scriptures at the time and making comments and quoting it so that we can look and we can say, well, this is a pretty accurate rendition of the accounts of the New Testament. But if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated. There was a period of time where the Israelites, uh, when uh, you know, they divided as a kingdom, and then because they d- divided as a kingdom, they went into bondage. And uh, when they came out of the bondage, they had to have somebody teach them Hebrew. They didn't even know the Hebrew language. And then they resurrected the scriptures, and they began to, you know, there were some people who had studied it, but the general people didn't understand them. And there was even one place where they talked about building the altars again, and and uh, I always remember a pastor who was saying that, you know, the, and the people, you know, the the old men wept when they decided to build the altars. And they said, oh, they wept for joy. And the re- when I read it, even in the English, uh, without going back to the Hebrew text, no, they wept because you were not building the altars according to the original ancient ways. And... Uh, this is this was actually a theme amongst the prophets, you know Jeremiah and all the minor prophets which we've we've written about, you know Micah and all these guys who talk about the fact that the people lost sight of what Moses originally was talking about when he wrote about Abraham and what Abraham was doing, and when he wrote about the Exodus and when he wrote about. Uh, you know, to the, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, uh, which was all about accounting for the people and creating a nation. If you do not understand that Moses was talking about the religious, moral, and political life of the Israelites, you do not understand the Bible. Because he was... He had taken these people out of a common form of government at that time, which we refer to as the bondage of Egypt. But it was the same bondage of the people that were in Sodom, the same uh, bondage that we see in Moab, the same bondage we see in Sumer. And the people 
you know, embrace their chains, their bondage uh, in Sumer. Because life was difficult. You know, there were famines, there was droughts, there were marauding groups of men. Uh, there was no United Nations to prevent people from invading, and there was no United Nations to invade your country. <laughs> why do people have so much trouble understanding, and why do they lose sight of what Moses was talking about? And how much was Moses talking about what was going on in the rest of the world? Not just in Egypt, but in all these other city-states. And, I mean, you can go back to Nimrod. He talks about Nimrod, who is this mighty provider instead of the Lord. Now, I say it that way. If you if you look at the the uh, King James, it was the, the mighty hunter before the Lord. But if you look at the actual Hebrew words... The word hunter there is never translated hunter anywhere else in the Bible. It is the, what they're talking about is a provider for the people. I mean, it's usually trans, the word hunter there is translated provision. It, it actually is translated venison because the word venison has to do with provisions. You know, you go out and you hunt, you get meat, you bring back provisions, which is venison. So the word venison itself, the word that represents the idea of venison, also represents the idea of provisions. Whether those provisions come from your flocks or from the wilderness, the word is not specific. And so it gives a lot of leeway in the translation so you can kind of fill in, which is why so many words in the Hebrew are translated 10, 15 different ways. I mean, some are are translated the same way all the time. If you looked up the word fire, it would be translated fire almost every time you see the word fire. But what they don't tell you, which everybody who knows Hebrew should know, is that the same word translated fire is also translated wife. (laughs) Like, more times... Then it's translated fire. The same letters. They give it a different Strong's number, so you say, well, that's a different word. Well, if you're reading in the Hebrew text, you're seeing the word that they translate into wife, and you're also seeing the word translated into fire. And you have to read it in the context to decide how to put it into practical use. Well, there's a lot of idioms and metaphors built into the language of Hebrew where kidneys can also mean the reins of a horse. The same exact letters. Same exact word. They only give kidneys this one Strong's number. So, But if you read down the definition in your concordance, any concordance, you'll see that that same word that's translated kidney is also translated reins. As in reins of control, reign the power to control something. And so, as we've talked about before, the altars of Abraham, the altars of Moses, the Levites under Moses were given the reins of control of your sacrifice. It, not the kidney fat, but the actual reins of control. And if you knew Hebrew, and you didn't learn it in a modern Hebrew school <laughs> where you were trained to think 
oh, this is what it means. But you're just looking at the letters and you're saying, these letters mean this and this and this. (laughs) And then you can mix and match, you know, like multiple choice. See, almost every verse in the Hebrew Bible, there's a process of multiple choice. Because so many words have multiple meanings. So many combinations of letters, and that's what a word is, a combination of letters. Physically, it's a combination of letters. It represents an idea, but if the same letters can represent several ideas, you can be sowing confusion amongst the people. But of course, from the beginning, God was trying to write upon your hearts and your minds through the tree of life. But if you reject the tree of life, reject walking with God, and try to become God, and decide for yourself what is good and evil, and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will cut yourself off from the tree of life. Because to eat of the tree of life means that you're going to see yourself as you really are. And the first thing that happens when you eat of the tree of knowledge is you become ashamed because of your nakedness, which means your lack of authority to decide for yourself what is good and evil. You can decide to do good or evil, but you can't decide what good or evil is. You cannot change good and evil. You cannot change whatever God is, the God of creation, the God of nature that created everything we see around us and is the divine intelligence that has created everything around us. Your opinion doesn't trump his opinion. It doesn't override his opinion. And his opinion is reality. Whatever he is, his opinion, the God, by the nature of the term God, his opinion is reality. And so, when you read the Bible, you need to be eating of the tree of life. You need to be listening to the Holy Spirit, to the still small voice that prophets talk about, that tell you what is true and what is not. They tell you. You don't decide for yourself. God tells you what is good and evil. Now, you can try to decide for yourself But nature does not have to agree. And so if you follow the ways of Cain, the ways of Nimrod, the ways of Pharaoh, the ways of Sumer, the way of the goddess, the dove goddess of Ishtar, if you follow their ways, certain things are going to happen. It's going to be automatic. It's built in to the system. You jump off a building and gravity takes over. And you're headed for the sidewalk. And that's just the way it is going to be. So, Moses is going to try to show the people who have been in bondage for 400 years another way to go. Another way to travel through life. Another way to relate to one another through a politics of voluntarism. Not a politics of force, but a politics of voluntarism, where the people have to daily volunteer 
to help one another in some sort of fashion. He's going to build a structure in order to do that. You are going to be health, education, and welfare. You are going to be the justice system. You are going to be the welfare system of the state of Israel. Now, you're not going to all be as good at it as some of you, and some of you are going to be very bad at it. (laughs) But that's because it's a government in the micro. And this will, when I finally do our analysis of Jordan Peterson's walk through Exodus, he said something kind of interesting at the end of... uh, uh, episode 16, I guess is what it was. Uh, and I, I, it's, it was a slip of the tongue, uh, I guess. But it was also like, uh, maybe it was Freudian. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I, I mean, it just jumped out at me when he said it. And he was a little choked up. He thought he'd gotten to the end of their entire series, which is episode 16. But then they, they're they doing a summary, evidently, in episode 17, which I just began to look at. But his statement was, congratulations, men, talking to his little symposium, his little panel there. He says, we made it out of Israel. And, you know, they left that in. I don't know if anybody corrected him. Uh, I don't know if he knows what he said today, but uh, it, they were studying Exodus. They they should have said, we made it out of Egypt. But the truth is, all that panel, Jordan Peterson, all of almost all of you out there, have made it out of Israel. You've also made it out of the kingdom of God. You've successfully left the kingdom of God <laughs> and you have all returned to the bondage of Egypt which it was a common thing amongst the history of Israel they were constantly they were coming out of bondage going into bondage coming out of bondage going into bondage they had to have prophets come and say that you're on the wrong path you got to turn around repent go this other way and of course Christ was no different We talk about Old Testament, New Testament, but you talk about the minor prophets. There are lots of little events of the New Testament trying to get the people to go back to the ways of Moses. Which, in Deuteronomy, they talk about the Song of Moses. And in Revelation, they talk about the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And they say only like 144,000 learn the Song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And of course that song is, you know, a rhythm, a pattern that, that we need to follow. We need to follow the way which is uh, amplified in the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And Moses is writing about this when he writes about Abraham, when he writes about everybody else. He is talking about this idea of following this unique other way that is not the way of Cain, not the way of Nimrod, not the way of Pharaoh, not the way of Sumer, not the way of Moab. And we need to know the difference. And once you need to, once you know the difference between Israel and Egypt, 
then you can start to come out of Egypt and start pursuing Israel, which is the kingdom of God. Israel, not Israel over there in the Middle East. That's just a government created by men. But Israel is where men actually contend with God. They listen to God. They eat of the tree of life. They contend with their own frailty. And that's a process because even even a Saul before he became Paul, when he was knocked off his high horse, he had to go away and rethink a lot of the stuff that he thought was true before. He was really smart, knew all the pharisaical teachings, you know all the Christian teachings, you know all the Jewish teachings, whoever you are out there listening, or you may think you do, but do you really know the truth? Do you know the teachings of God? Which... I can't even teach you the teachings of God. I can talk about them. We can walk around them. We can walk around you, what you have previously thought were the teachings of God. But you're going to have to do the multiple choice. And the, the great thing about the multiple choice in the kingdom of God and seeking the kingdom of God is you got two choices. The right way, the wrong way. <laughs> you, you're going to be headed towards Babylon or away from Babylon. And this the choice though is going to be, you know, two basic choices made a thousand times a day as to whether you're going to be going the ways of idolatry. Now, as I said before, Moses wrote this uh his narrative uh in in the the Torah in a way that it could be misinterpreted. The Hebrew language lends itself to that. And of course, the reason why is so that people could misinterpret it. People who are not eating of the tree of life. So a lot of things I'm going to say are going to be contradictory to what you already think is true. A lot of the things I say are going to seem like I'm attacking your delusions. But I'm not. I'm not really attacking your delusions. I'm Helping you with your unbelief. Ultimately, you're going to have to decide what these different passages mean. And uh, so, we're going to go back over the Turtle Dove passages. uh, uh, the, The Turtle Dove page. Which, I may end up naming it something different than Turtle Dove. And, but... I want to get it in your mind that when you say the word turtle dove, you know it is not referencing a dove. Uh, There was, there is a semblance of a turtle dove. Actually, we have turtle doves right outside my window. Actually, what you would, they're Asian doves. They're not native to the United States, but somebody brought them over here to the United States. And they're considered an invasive species. And, uh, well, and that's okay. Uh, they make kind of a pretty little cooing sound and everything. They're not very good eating bird, but I suppose if you were hungry enough, you could eat them. But um, they're very prolific. And uh, they're everywhere. But the turtle dove that Moses is actually talking about is representative of the dove goddess. Uh, just like his uh, altar of uh, what what... We translate as Jehovah Nisi. Jeho- he, he refers to that first altar that he built after that 
confrontation with another tribe. He refers to it as Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi. And I, I was shocked when I went and looked that up and to find out why does he call it Nisi. And nobody knows. There's all kinds of conjecture. All the commentaries that say, could be this, could be that. You know, they, they, they think this is a good guess, that is a good guess. Well, I can tell you what he's saying. Because I know what Nisi meant at that time. Now, I don't know, maybe the guys who are translating don't know what Nisi meant. I think some of them might. But it's not going to be popular for you to know what Nisi meant. It, it really means the same thing as Nazi dust today. <laughs> and the word is actually pronounced Nazi, uh, depending on how you phonetically pronounce the letters that form the Nisi. But Nisi is the dove goddess of Sumer. And, and of course, it's the same goddess you see in Ishtar and a lot of these other city-states in uh, I was trying to think of some of the other places. Uh, the Minoans civilization had it. You can find all these statues and reliefs of a woman dressed in a like fringe-type skirt uh, with doves on her shoulders or on her head or in her arms or what have you. And that's Nisi. That's one of her names. She has lots of other names. And she was the goddess of social welfare. And she was taking care of the needy of their societies. It was how you got bound to this society. Is that you wanted to receive the benefits. Then you had to sign up for the programs of Nisi. You had to sign up for Nazism. <laughs> I mean, using it as the ancient pronunciation of Nisiism. And it was basically a system of legal charity. Through men who exercised authority. This is what Nimrod was. This is what why he was a mighty provider. He provided for the people because he taxed the people. Cain did the same thing. He plowed the Odama, he taxed the people, and he was able to provide for them. And you could live out in the world. I mean, there was all kinds of uninhabited places. And there was all kinds of little valleys where there were little creeks, and you could come and put in a garden and make sure your creek, as long as it flowed, you could... Water your garden, you could uh, take care of livestock, and, and, you know, just with you and your family, you could live out there pretty good. But if 20 guys come along and wanted to steal everything, you were in a lot of trouble. So people gathered together to protect themselves from the lawless element, because the poor and the lawless element you'll always have. How they gathered, we'll talk about when we return to Keys to the Kingdom. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I said that we're going to look at these different ways in which people bind themselves together for the security of the community that they live in. I mean, we're social animals. Uh, the idea of going off and becoming, you know, this wilderness wanderer where you just have your, your family, your wife, your kids, and you do everything yourself. Now, there was a lot of that going on in pioneer days, but people had neighbors, and they gathered together regularly as much as they could. Of course, if, if you go out uh, 
and you do this farming, Trails of the Wilderness Wanderers, that was a book I read about a Canadian family who went and dug in, literally dug in out there in the Canadian wilderness and built barns and everything. An amazing story of how they survived generation after generation. But uh, there was a town that started up not too far away. And they would go to the town to get stuff. I mean, these people were very independent. I mean, he was going to build a barn. And so, what did he do to build a barn? And there were some trees around and some wood, but he wanted a strong foundation. So he went down to the river and he dug gravel out of the river. He also went to a location where he saw limestone and he dug the limestone out of that location and uh, uh, I guess he had a wagon he loaded it into the wagon and he took it to another spot along the river where there was a steep river bank a cutaway and he dug into the side of the bank uh, uh, and then you know a little tunnel and then a big hole inside the bank and then he eventually dug upward until he came to the surface like a chimney so inside this bank there was this big chamber He might have slept in that chamber a few times while he was doing all this. Because then he had to take his wagon over to another location where he knew there was coal. Now, he had come out earlier with surveyors, Canadian surveyors and the mounted police, and surveyed a lot of the ground and knew where the ground was. But it was all wilderness when he got there. There wasn't any other hardly farms around anywhere. Uh, but a lot of other people came out too, and this is the land that he was proving up. So he picked a spot where he knew there was coal nearby, where there was limestone nearby, where there was gravel, washed gravel, and sand in the river. And he dug those things out by hand, not with a backhoe, and put them in his wagon and hauled them to a site that was above the floodplain and... There he dug into the side and he put the limestone and the coal in this chamber in the side of the uh, cut bank that he built. And then he fired it with wood and everything, got it going good, you know, got the coal burning, the limestone burning. Then he sealed it off so that no more oxygen would come in. And what was he doing? He was making cement. And he took the cement out and he mixed it with the limestone and he poured the foundation for his barn which was like a basement. He dug out and he built this basement around his barn. And uh, the walls I think were 12 inches thick of this concrete. And then on top of that he would eventually build a barn with split timbers and sawed lumber. He made his own sawmill, sawed the lumber up and made his barn. All the time now he's taking care of livestock, raising his family, everything. That's how people did it. People don't do it that way anymore. I mean, huge. I mean, this is taking years and years of work. You know, the, the first winter, I don't think he had the cement poured yet for his barn. And people lived in sod homes. I, my own ancestors lived up in North Dakota. Similar climate. And no trees around. Built sod homes. Lived in haystacks. During 
North Dakota winters. Took care of livestock that were eating the house. Because <laughs> the house was a haystack. Uh and, you know, you talk about a sod house, you know, and they, they'd get planks to make the roof and then they'd lay sod on the roof. Well, you know, any type of wind, you had dust coming down. And life was hard. And you're out there alone. And like I said, ten guys could come along and hit you over the head with a shovel and steal everything you have. Murder your family. That kind of stuff happened. So people figured out a way of coming together. I'm sure life was hard in in places where Abraham was. But Abraham was in Ur. But then you go back and you read the story of Ur. Abraham actually appears to have been originally in Indus Valley. And a large number of the people from Indus Valley came to a place that was called Ur. That evidently existed before a big flood. And was literally, according to... Archaeologists were was dug out of mud. It was completely, several story buildings were completely submerged under mud. And they dug out down to the street levels and appeared buildings. I mean, you can go to uh, Italy today. And they are still finding buildings buried under the ground that used to be on top of the ground. And that they can, you can actually, they, sometimes those buildings are still in existence so that, that if you find them, there's like two, three stories going down into the ground. It's completely covered by dirt. And back from the days of Rome, they've uncovered a, a major palace of a very rich man where, you know, some of the Caesars came to visit him and the, the reliefs are still on the wall. The whole thing was buried in dirt. Recently discovered. And, uh, and, and they've discovered underground cities in Turkey and what have you and everything. Completely buried. Of course, some of them were actually built underground to begin with. Why'd they do that? For protection. So, when they moved into Ur, they had to, they uncovered tablets. We're still under, uncovering tablets in Ur. Figuring out what they did. That's where the Hammurabi codes were made. But why were they gathering in these cities? Protection of the dangers of the world. And one of those protections is you could fall off a ladder, you could get injured, there could be, your business could collapse because, you know, you used to trade in particular things that suddenly because of a war you can't get anymore and so now you have to change businesses. Life could be interrupted at any moment. So people gathered together and when they did this, they created social welfare systems in these cities to take care of the needy of society. And that's what attracted more people to come. Not only were they going to protect you from marauders and they were going to protect you from common thieves and they were going to help protect what property you would own in the city but they would also protect you for that time of shortfall. You know, plagues, your children die, nobody's going to take care of you in old age. So they would set up welfare systems. This is one of the things Jordan Peterson's little group doesn't seem to know. I mean, you read the New York Times, they tell you about Sumer and the dove goddess being the social welfare of that society. That's how they got into Israel. 
Now, I said it. Jordan Peterson says that we've got through Israel when, when the truth is that he didn't get, got out of Israel. What he did was he got out of Egypt. <laughs> but he actually has gotten into Egypt because they don't understand that they went into the bondage of Egypt because they did not have the resources to survive the depression or the recession or the famine, whatever you want to call it. They didn't have the means to provide for themselves. So, what happened? They uh, they went into bondage in Egypt because the Pharaoh was told to get prepared for the coming famine. Put up lots and lots of grain. Seven years supply of grain. And and that's what he did. And when the famine came, he could feed lots and lots of people. A lot of people survived because the Pharaoh was there. But he didn't do it for nothing. He said, no, you, you're going to have to give me 20% of your labor. Well, okay, give him 20% of the labor. Got to the famine. Now there's an improvement out there. The climate change has come. And now there's grass growing out in the wilderness. We can go out there. And I'm sure many people that might have come to Egypt went back out there. But many people went to Egypt and they just stayed there. Because it was comfortable. That word comfortable actually plays into some of these translations. It plays into some of the things I heard them saying about a pastor. supposed to make the people feel comfortable. But religion was how you took care of the needy of society. So Abraham who may have been in the Indus Valley, known as Abram, who married somebody, was a half-sister, Sari. Sari Vista is the name. And eventually married a Egyptian princess named Gahagi, or Haggai. All those characters are in mythology or in the folklore of the Indus Valley because in the Indus Valley there was a giant flood where all kinds of... uh, uh, it wasn't the flood, but they talk about on the other side of the flood. But they're talking about a flood that took place in the Indus Valley. And it took place probably because of an earthquake, probably because they had made lots of dams for irrigation, and a lot of those dams collapsed and flooded out. And it didn't destroy everything, but there was also something else going on at the time, of social reform and... Like 20,000 villages emptied out. They they weren't all buried like Ur, but they emptied out and the people went different directions. Some went up towards the Ural Mountains, some went to the east, some went to the west. Abraham evidently went to Ur and was living in Ur. But then, because of an incident concerning his brother, Haran, they left Ur. And they, uh, or, yeah, they left Ur, and they went and started their own city-state. His father, Terah, and all their possessions, all their servants. If there were nine hundred male servants in Abraham's entourage when he finally ended up out in the desert, uh, there could have been thousands that left with Terah to build the city of Haran. But Abraham was led to leave Haran. Now, all these are city-states. 
All of them are operating somewhat the same. Everybody thinks that, well, we're going to do it like them, but we're going to do it right. We're going to do it different. We're going to have justice. Well, of course, what those cities were, were they were all social welfare systems through civil authority. The, the Nisis, the, 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 uh, Nimrods, the, all these systems were, you collected a tribute, and that tribute was stored, or, you know, it could be in the form of grain, it could be in the form of a lot of things, but it was now, these are part of the welfare system, the religious welfare system, the public religion, of those city-states. And many of the city-states had them. Some city-states did not. Israel did not. They had a system of social welfare, because you need that, because life is difficult. But they didn't have one based on civil authority. And this is what I just shocking that Jordan Peterson can't figure this out, because he really knows the psychology of man, is that it is based on responsibility and he's always talking about responsibility he just didn't get the truth about the book of exodus and torah from his symposium they admitted early on there was somebody missing you could fill in the gaps they didn't they were asking questions but they didn't put it together and one of the great fallacies that that was said by jonathan there is there was no social safety net in those days that's how they went into bondage. That's why Jordan Peterson and all the members of that symposium are back in the bondage of Egypt, where a portion of their labor, 20%, 30%, I'm sure Jordan's in a pretty high tax bracket, he's probably paying way more than 20%, goes to the government because he's in the bondage of Egypt. If he buys land, he doesn't really own it. He has a legal title. He doesn't own 100% of his labor. When you went into Israel, when you came out of Egypt, you owned 100% of your labor. But they were still going to need that social welfare system. So we see Moses setting up a social welfare system through Jehovah Nisi to take care of the needy of society. And he tells you how to build that altar, which is not made out of stones. It's not, it's not made out of rocks that are unhewn. It's made out of men. Because all these words have multiple meanings. And you don't burn them up with fire. You consume it. But it's not a conflagration of fire. Because the word fire doesn't always mean a flame. Where something's burning. It has to do with who you're married to on a national basis, not your individual wife. You know, the church is called the bride of Christ. I mean, that's a, that's a common metaphor. We see that metaphor, you know, more precious than Ruby in Proverbs. This wife who takes care of the needy and all this stuff and waits upon them. That's what the, the dove goddess of Nisi did. It took care of the needy. And that's what Jehovah Nisi altar did. After they had this battle, there were people that were going to need help. And so they built this 
altar just for that purpose of taking care of the needy. There were probably people injured. There were probably now widows that there weren't before. And so they had to be taken care of. So they started the Jehovah Nisi altar to take care of those needy. And people would go and donate to that. But it says from the very beginning that all the offerings that comes to his altar must be free will offerings. All the offerings that come to the altar of Nisi in Sumer were not free will offerings. They were compelled offerings. And they accounted for the people to make sure that everybody was paying their fair share. And if you didn't pay your fair share, you could be punished. These are two different systems. Now, one quote that I want to bring up, because it's going to relate into everything that we see in the beginning, Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him into the garden. Now, he'd already given man dominion over the fish and the wildlife and the birds of the air and all the stuff. and uh, But he put him in the garden, which means protected place, and said, Dress it and keep it. And he's talking about that dominion to dress it and keep it. And now Abraham is called out of, he was, he came out of a word, now he's called out of Haran to the home of his nativity to receive an inheritance, a dominion. And we talked about that before you can go listen to the other shows and uh, the ones just before this and we talk about that. So, but now he's, he's conversing with God and, and he's, he's told about to take this heifer and this she goat and this ram and, and this turtle dove and lay them out. He, he divides some of them. He doesn't divide the turtle dove. He just lays the turtle dove whole. And then he goes into this deep sleep. And when he goes into this deep Sleep, and he's also had been told that they were going to his the seeds were going to go into a bondage, and then they were going to be in bondage for four hundred years, and then they were going to come out with great substance. But they needed to go into that bondage to learn what that bondage is, and then they can begin the process of repentance to overcome the effect that that bondage had on them. Because we know from Polybius, and we know from Plutarch. That the greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And we know from Proverbs that the dainties of rulers uh, are a snare. And we know from David the same thing. We know from Paul the same thing. So those benefits provided by men who exercise authority, in other words, the benefits provided by civil authority, degenerate the people that turn them into merchandise, according to Peter, curse their children. And they were in that bondage for 400 years. And now Jordan Peterson and his symposium are all in that bondage again. And I don't, I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying that we got to look at it the way it is. And so now they have to come out of that system. And they have to create a new system. But in his deep dream, he sees this smoking furnace and burning lamp passing through between... That division of a heifer, of a she-goat, of a ram. 
And actually, since the dove is not divided, it passes between the dove and Abraham. And these things are representative of these things. If you look up the word heifer, now, you know, we have a word when they talk about the red heifer, which has nothing to do with the heifer and has nothing to do with the color red. But people are out looking for a red heifer to sacrifice a red heifer and sprinkle the ashes around because they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand the metaphors because they're not, they're not really studying it with the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so, now I'm saying that, you can say, well, I, I, I got the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, you can say that. But what you're doing is, got you back into the bondage of Egypt again. Everybody's back in the bodies. So whatever your interpretation is of these testaments, write it down. You're all back in the bondage of Egypt. How'd you get there? It's because you didn't understand what Moses was saying. Yeah, so he uses a different word for heifer. In, in this Genesis 15.9. You know. Uh, when he says take me a heifer. He uses this word. And gimel lamad hay. And uh, it's it's not para. Which is the heifer that you see. When you're reading Numbers 19.2. It, it's, it's this other word. And gimel lamad hay. Gimel. Is the the letter for cause and effect? So there's some sort of cause and effect involved in this heifer thing. But the same word that we see uh, para can be translated to bear fruit, to make fruitful. So they're supposed to sacrifice their extra fruit. And distributed amongst the other nations round about them. The the red heifer is all about foreign aid. And we have a whole article on that. You can go read that if you want to know more about that. But this this heifer that uh, he's talking about that Abraham lays out. That same word, same letters, different Strong's number. Means a cart or a wagon. And a cart or a wagon is a, is a container. And you put stuff in that container. We see a word where Joshua and them are taking sacrifices and putting them in a wagons, in several wagons. In other words, they're putting them in a container. They're setting them aside and putting them in this thing and then they're moved. That's what you put stuff in a wagon and you move it. So this word has to do with bringing stuff together and moving it. To another location. And that's the word they're talking about, the heifer. So whatever that is, that's, you know, in Egypt, that would be your big granaries. So literally, he could take grain and he could separate it. And what God is saying that there's going to be this fiery furnace, this lamp, this light that is moving also. And it's going to go between you in a portion, you're going to end up with a sizable portion of what would normally be the sacrifice left after this bondage. And of course, that's what we see. They're, they're going to come out with great substance. And they're going to, the substance they're going to get to keep is going to be the result of this fiery furnace that is the pillar of 
smoke in the daytime and pillar of fire at night. This lamp that is going to guide them. And so they're going to end up with this treasure from Egypt, this portion from Egypt. Some's going to stay in Egypt. Some's going to go with them. But the dove, the turtle dove, is going to be completely separated. It's it's going to come between them. And that's because the turtle dove represents the dove goddess of the Nazis, of the Nisi. <laughs> See, they would all know what that Nisi was. They would all know what that represents. And when he says he's going to build the altar of Jehovah Nisi, they know that, you know, the same as they called him Moses, not because he was Tut Moses, which was the name of the Pharaoh at that time. They called him Moses because he was from the water. They didn't call him Moses because he was the Pharaoh. Sometimes they wanted to make him the Pharaoh, and that was that is a point that is kind of brought up by Jordan Peterson's symposium, and they're right about that. But uh, so anyway, let's go on to she goat and ram. And despite what uh, that uh, one philosopher says, a goat is a goat is a goat. In the Bible, a goat is not always a goat is not always a goat. So I've added whole sections to that page since last week's program, and I'll probably add more. I added more this morning. And we'll look at that when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, to move along a little quicker, uh, basically the heifer has to do with the provisions that are normally in the depository of the social welfare system. The sacrifices of the people. I mean, Abraham isn't just out there cutting heifers in half and she goats in half and everything and laying them out on the ground. Although that's the metaphor, the allegory story that were given, whether that actually took place exactly the way you picture it, or artists picture it, not necessarily so, but as an allegory story, or parable, we can say that, yeah, there is a true message in this. And of course, the, the second carcass is the she-goat, and but the problem is the she-goat, same exact letters, the Z-N-A-N, uh, that is the idea of she-goat is also the idea of strength. Uh, denoting this idea of, you know, something that is, that is usually your sacrifice. You know, if, if you produce olive oil and you go out and you pick all the, you grow all the olive trees, you make sure they get watered when there's drought, you know, you may carry water and put on them when there's drought. And because olive trees take a lot of water, and so you want your olives to be big, and so you get all your olives, and then you pick them, and then you take them back to a place, and you build an olive press, and then you press them to press the oil out, and uh, you don't do a lot of fancy heating, you don't use chemicals like they do today, so you're going to have like a big huge beam, and then a, a sack, and you put all the olives in the sack, I mean, it's a, like a woven sack. You put all the olives in that woven sack, and then 
you crush them by getting out on the far end of this levered beam and you have, apply pressure. Maybe you put a basket out on the end of the beam and you fill it full of rocks. You're picking up rocks. It's a lot of work. And then it dribbles down a little bit of oil and then you catch that oil in a container. And now because all that work you put into it, the oil will have value. Anybody who wants that oil going to have to pay you for the work that you did. And 100% of the work that you did belongs to you because you're a free person in Israel. Now you take that olive oil and you sell it to buy the things that you didn't have time to produce. Maybe you don't have any sheep. Probably do have a few because you want to keep the grass down in your olive orchard. But there's something you don't have that somebody else produces and you can trade your extra olive oil because you can't use all... I mean, you got 50 trees. You're going to eat all that olive oil? No. You're going to sell some of it. But if you're following the way of Moses, some of it has to be given as a sacrifice. But you get to choose... What's oil? You're supposed to give good oil, not all your junk. You're supposed to give good oil as a part of your sacrifice. And who do you give it to? You take it all the way to the tabernacle and you give it to the priest, right? And then the priest goes in and sets it on fire and burns it up. So what's the point of that? I can't believe that people still think that that's what they were doing. Well, it says they burn it up. There's an offering in fire. It's going to get burned up. Except for the same word for fire means something else. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's what you're supposed to give. But the point is, is that olive oil represents your strength, your labor. You know, whether you're making bricks or olive oil or weaving garments, that thing that you produced is representative of your labor. Your sweat and toil is in those objects. And so the she-goat is representing that strength that you expended to produce this thing that is now, you're going to get a portion of that strength back. Some of it's going to be lost but you're going to get a portion of it back and this fiery furnace is going to make sure it happens after 400 years of bondage. This is the dream of Abraham and he's going to end up inheriting land. Okay. Now the ram. Now this would seem also like it has to do with strength and it actually, it variation means, you know, because there are words with the same Letters, but different numbers. There's uh, there's three five two, and there's three five three, and so the three five three is a variation that means strength or help. So both mean strength. Maybe the first one has to do more with your intelligence and your strength and your skills as an artisan or whatever, as an olive oil maker. Uh, and the sec- next one is the strength r- represented in how you can help other people with what you produce. Both of them requiring a portion of your labor. But when you were in the bondage of Egypt, that portion of your labor went to the priests of Egypt who redistributed the granary of Egypt according to 
their design according to their exercising authority. Which is now we're moving into an area of woke culture where they they want to track, okay, if your politics isn't right, they may close your bank account like they did in Canada, like they did some in Australia. And they want to do it in the United States. They have done it in the United States. They've gotten private banks to close people's accounts. And so that's putting hardships on individuals. But what do you care as long as you get your food stamps and your free education and your Medicare and your Medicaid? Well, they're going to cut you back eventually too. And when you let it happen to your neighbor, it's going to happen to you. But, of course, I'm not trying to get you to gather together to make sure they pay you all your benefits because that isn't going to happen because their system will fail. I want you to pay into their system if you're a part of their system, but you need to start coming together in righteousness for when their system fails. And the way to do that is to do exactly what Christ said, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, start loving your neighbor as yourself. So anyway, so we got this ram also means uh, help. So the help that you would normally get is now going to be divided by this fire. Another word is uh, three, five, four, same letters, Elif, Yad, Lamad. And it means stag or heart, which is like a deer, uh, with that same spelling. Well, of course, if we go back to Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord... That he's talking about, they're talking about the provisions. So there's the actual strength that takes, that took place to make the provisions, but then there's the actual provisions. And, and there's the cart that you store them all in, and, you know, the vault or whatever it is you store them all in, and that will be divided. All these things will be divided. Uh, and some people will say, well, we know. That it, it's a ram because it says it has to be a male sheep. You know, and of course you can, you can believe that it has to be a male sheep for your free will offerings. Except for the fact that the same word male, zakar, uh, what is that? Zayn kuf, uh, rash. I think that's what it is. Or is it kof? Rash. Um, but anyway, it can mean male or mankind, but the same letters also produce another word that means memorial or remembrance. So you're doing this to remember when you used to get your welfare through men who exercise authority, now you're getting it through men who exercise charity and love. And this is going to bind you together more. Because you, it, your sacrifice is going to help you recall that if we, if we're taking care of the needy through men who exercise authority, something Christ forbid, Moses was brought you out of, then you're going to be back in the bondage of Egypt. And since you're back in the bondage of Egypt, evidently you didn't remember. You thought that they meant male when they actually said, remember how this works. But you didn't remember how it works. And then, of course, you can say, well, yeah, but it also has to be a male without blemish. So it's a memory without blemish. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that when you do give a sacrifice, if you give your olive oil, you should give your best. If you want the best, you should give your best. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. But this idea without blemish or perfect or upright or everything, the same word can also mean sincerely. So you have to give, and Christ talked about this, where the guy gave so that he would appear to be very charitable, and that's not it. That you have to sincerely give because you actually care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Understanding all this, she goats, rams, heifers, and everything. Understanding that they're describing the nature of your offering, which is always a free will offering. It's going to provide dainties, not from rulers who exercise authority, but from the micro-community that exercises love. So why do you have a priest to do it? Why can't I just give to my neighbor? Because you're going to get feelings of obligation directly to you because you gave directly to your neighbor. And of course, you certainly can give directly to your neighbor. But your sacrifice... Remember, the Levites were called out because the people did not have faith in their neighbors. They they only had faith in the charisma and the character of Moses. Moses was gone, so now they want to bind their neighbors by putting their neighbor's wealth into a central bank, into a central place from which they can get what they need. And this binds them together because everybody's going to defend the golden calf. But, you know, they hadn't taken it all the way out into a system of social welfare, but we've talked about the city-states who would have these golden statues, but in time of war they would cut off an arm and turn it into coins and go out and from other city-states that did have grain or did have armaments or did have things that they needed to make war, and they would buy them with their gold. And they had priests to handle those transactions. And that was the tables that they created to provide for the needy of society. But that it, it doesn't create the social bonds of a free society. So the burnt offerings aren't always set on fire. The unhewn stones are not rocks. The altars are a system of charity. And the priests receive that they give it. They're not going to get full credit when they give. I, I've known ministers who gave out of their own pocket because they couldn't get their board to want to help out the guy. <laughs> but the reality is, is that that's what your ministers are supposed to be doing. Is that they're going out and redistributing the wealth wealth you freely chose to give them. It's a different system. It's going to produce different results. And the the offering is burnt up to you. And back to that fire. And strange fire. Strange woman. Strange fire. That it's strange because it's not a free will offering. They're, they're trying to coerce people into making an offering. And that will consume them. Now, admittedly at the time of Moses, there seemed to be this furnace, this cloud of smoke and cloud of fire that caused immediate uh, 
reactions to things. It also provided all kinds of other stuff, which we'll get into later. But uh, that was only why they were going to the desert. They would not have made it through the desert without this extra aid of this this thing floating around with somebody inside that Moses is talking to and all this kind of stuff that we refer to as the Lord or Yahweh. So, and a few other things that I added, you know, like I did mention something about it, that the same word that we see translated into young pigeon, also the same letters can mean to tear away or to seize or to plunder. So, when they're talking about the turtle dove, because there's another completely different word for turtle dove that's in reference to these systems of the dove goddess. And they're and when they're talking about Jehovah Nisi, they're talking about it, that reference has to do with the dove goddess of Nisi, named Nisi. But with Jehovah, with the Lord, with Yahweh, the offerings are not forced through a civil authority. They're free will offerings. And same way when we talked about Moab in the last show. And uh, Moab was this just a location. Moab means of his father. And of course Moab was of his father. But Jesus said call no man on earth father. And so all that if you go back and listen to all the stuff where we're talking about make ye him drunken for he magnified himself against the Lord. They're talking about this father of the earth that was operating a system of legal charity. And uh, even, even we'll look at burnt incense and everything when we do an individual program on it. But, but understanding these, if you know the backdrop and you're listening to the story as an allegory, whether it happened in real life or not, whether it's, you know, a lot of Theologians, a lot of archaeologists don't believe that Moses wrote the Torah. They believe that it was written and rewritten and finally put in its final form, you know, like about 500 BC. And so they're saying that it was played with a lot. Other people are saying, no, it's exactly the way Moses wrote it. Well, it's a, it's an inspired book. I believe that. And I believe to understand it, you have to be a little bit inspired. It's very clear that, you know, that if we're not living under liberty, if we're forcing our neighbor to contribute to our welfare through men who exercise authority, we will, that will degenerate the masses and we will return to a similar captivity. And of course, that's exactly what's happened. But I, like I said, I've added a great deal more to uh, the, the webpage on Turtle Dove to try to bring, and so this is kind of a review of that. Uh, I added more stuff about the Minoan Palace of Gnosis, which has this dove shrine deposit, you know, with the three pillars, and they would receive the gifts of the people. But it was the late Minoan civic and rural shrines of Gordian, uh, Gornia, and Gnosis. And Carfi, which is an interesting word, uh, which we'll look at. I mean, like Capernaum. It comes from a particular word, Keter, which shows up several times, which has to do with the crown uh, of the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, 
that if there's a king, he's only anointed. But every one of you should be anointed. In order to do that, you have to, you know, repent, think differently. And boy, I'm showing you a different way to think. That religion is only supposed to be a social safety net that is operating on charity. On a daily ministration of charity. You're still gathering together. You're deciding who you're going to give to, who you're not going to give to. And those individuals are to be providing welfare for the needy in your local congregations. But also, that's in the micro because it is all fundamentally funded in the micro. Because the individual is choosing what they're going to give and sacrifice. God's going to see that. That's going to take an effect on that individual's soul and that individual's heart and the individual grace that that individual will receive because they're actually following Christ, not just talking about Him. They're actually doing what He said. They're actually becoming a doer of the Word. They cast their bread on the waters hoping that it might come back to them. But it's going to require faith in order to do that. It's going to require personal sacrifice in order to do that. And so the city-states, most of them are doing it through a social welfare system that exercises authority. We know from Paul that... uh, Covetousness is idolatry. If you covet those wages of unrighteousness from those systems of legal charity, you're practicing idolatry again. And and it, people need to repent of that, and they need to repent of the legal charity. But they, in order to do that, they need to create that alternative with altars, living altars of living stones that come together like the early church. And start doing what the early church was doing. And your sacrifices have to be sincere voluntarism. That's that word blemish again. Tamium. Sincere. The mention also, uh, there's, there's, the word Corbin comes in, in several different forms. Uh, and, you know, this Corbin, that Jesus talked about that was making the word of God to none effect, which was the Corbin of the Pharisees, was the social welfare system set up by Herod and the Pharisees, which when they talk about mammon, mammon's what's in the cart. Mammon is entrusted wealth. That's what you put in. Unrighteous mammon is wealth that you entrusted because it was forced. It wasn't a choice. And so men who exercise authority have forced you. So that's the unrighteous mammon. If you just cheat the unrighteous mammon, then you probably won't won't be suitable for more righteous habitations with a righteous mammon, which is entrusted wealth. Now, one of the things about the entrusted wealth of the kingdom of God is that the storage place for the entrusted wealth of the kingdom of God is not a massive treasury with all your gold in it, like with the golden calf, but it may be a treasury that has some gold in it, but it's in circulation like the blood in your body and the blood of the body of Christ. It must be constantly in motion, letting it go. But the benefits you get from such a system are the wages of righteousness 
the benefits you get from a system of forced offering is the wages of unrighteousness, which is why the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. So, and again, but your sacrifices, I mean, if you were to give olive oil, does it have to be male olive oil? <laughs> no, no, but it has to be sincere olive oil. That is a given, a, a, the sincere gift. It has to be a memorial a representative of the gift. Because you're still going to be relying on faith, hope, and charity. It's not like, well, I, I deposited that with you. Now I want some of my olive oil back. Uh, once you, once you deposit it with your minister, it's burned up to you. It's gone. It's not coming back. And so, anyway, I added a great deal more to the page, and there's several other sections, and I actually color-coded them some, you know, the young pigeon one and all this stuff. And I'll probably go through the different Leviticus's appearance, the Leviticus 12.8, which has this bring a lamb. Uh, then she, if someone can't bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles, it says. But, of course, that's the same word for turtle dove. And, and it says, and two young pigeons. And one for the burnt offering. Well, we can go to this idea of turtle doves and young pigeons and why two. But goes back to this burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So there's like two doves, one's for a burnt offering and one for a sin offering. Well, then we have to go and explore what's the difference between a sin offering and a burnt offering. And if you realize that the word burnt has nothing to do with a fire, so what is the sin offering? It's something to do with the trespass. Just as the the uh, ram is supposed to be your strength in helping somebody, sin would be when you didn't help somebody or you actually caused a difficulty for somebody. Because you strayed from the formula. So, and then Leviticus 14.22 where it talks about turtle dove uh, as well. And and then they, you know, in uh, Leviticus 15.14 they talk about eight days he shall take to him two turtle doves and two young pigeons and come before the Lord. Now when the original turtle doves and pigeons, young pigeons... Were, they were quite a bit different words. But in these Leviticus 15.14 and 15.29, etc., they are very, very much the same word. Uh, and when we're seeing uh, the word for the turtle dove as the uh, Tav Resh Yad Mem, which is more letters than the word actually would stand for, but... Uh, and we're seeing something similar with the young pigeon. I'll probably add that to the page so that people come along later and they can actually see why. At least you'll see the mechanics of the language and why they did change the letters. Moses did change the letters when he put them in there. But I'm telling you, what they're really talking about is this idea of... Um, this other system of social welfare. E- even even some of these uh, 
words that they're they're talking about. Uh, you know, like uh, that. Your eight four four six. Tav. Tav vav rash, which is supposedly the similar word. It actually means to seek, to search out, to spy out, or to explore. And, and we see that again in a few other places, like 8447, similar, succession in order. And uh, even this turtle dove meaning a piece of your estate. So when you're making these sacrifices, what are you really giving up? Is it, are you killing a dove? We'll talk about that when we come back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, what I was going through there at the last, I was trying to rush through it. All these other numbers, 8446, 8447, 8448, 8449, they all have the same spelling of Tov, Vav, Resh. And they can mean to seek out or spy out or search out something. They can mean a succession of order. They can mean according to an estate. They can mean an ox or they can mean turtle dove. But of course we've seen where the turtle dove is actually written with extra letters like Yod Mim. So that, and actually they remove the Vav. So it's Tav Resh Yod Mim. Well if you remove the Vav, which is either a connecting or divisionary letter between Tav and Resh, see that's, that's interesting that the, when they're talking about the ox, they're talking about uh, a sacrifice. When they're talking about according to the uh, the estate, the rank of an individual, the succession of order. Uh, tov, Vav, Resh. Resh has to do with authority. Tov has to do with faith. And there's this Vav in between. But when we see Turtle Dove in, in Leviticus 12, 14, and 15... And even in number six, it's written Tov with no Vav, with Resh, with Yod, which is usually, you know, the divine spark, and Mim, which has to do with flowing, movement. So they're, they're talking about this turtle dove as this flowing movement. I, I believe that when it's spelled that way, you should find a completely different word. I mean, some two turtles is what they say in number six. And I think they also do that in Leviticus 15. They say two turtles. For some reason, I mean, the the King James guys, they say two turtles. But they're not turtles. They're turtle doves. If if it was written Tov, Vav, Resh, well, then it might be a turtle dove. But if you start adding these other letters, they're they're fiddling with the meaning. But, of course, if you don't know... That their alternative was these dove goddesses. These goddesses, they weren't all called dove goddesses. Nisi, they were holding the dove because the dove was prolific and and it was also the god of fertility. It was the god of fruitfulness. But it was also the goddess of the social welfare system. And of course, socialism offers you a social welfare system. But it's not based on free will offerings. It's based on legal charity. It's forced offerings. It's public religion. And, and there are some churches that are all for, you know, uh, some harlot churches that are all for public religion. 
Because all the money you were given to the priests, which we see in number 610, and on the eighth day, you're supposed to bring these two turtle doves, uh, or, two, or two young pigeons, to the priests, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So you got to go all the way to the temple? To, 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 to get, and what if I live way, you know, that's a, you know, like a five day journey. I, my wife just had a baby. <laughs> I'm not going. I can't get there. I gotta catch these two turtle doves and take them there so you can wring their necks off and put their blood on the side of the, no. No. You've unmoored the metaphor. You've, you've turned the allegory into a ridiculous story. That's not what it's about. But is it about, you know, a piece of your state, the succession of order? What is it about? It's about sacrifice. You don't have to go all the way to the tabernacle because you've got to remember the tabernacle is not supposed to be built out of dead stones. There, There is a tent there, but everybody can worship from their own tent. And, of course, you've got all these Levites who are the stones of the altars of Moses, just as you are altars of clay, so these guys are altars, stone altars. They're specific guys that are in charge of the social welfare. But you have to figure out how they're organized. Moses wouldn't say, well, you get this guy, and you get this guy. You have to contribute to this guy. He isn't doing that. That's micromanaging from the macro. No, he can't do that. You've got to organize yourselves. You gotta find out who is the charitable guy amongst you and, and you can go counsel him anytime you want, but whatever you gave him yesterday, you have no control over today. But you have control today over what you're gonna give him today. And that's different than the governments of Sumer and the governments of Nimrod and the governments of Cain and the governments of Sodom and the governments of the United States and the government of Australia. You have to give. It's a forced offering. Because you signed up. Because you were okay with the government forcing your neighbor to give to you. So now, your neighbor can force you to give to them. By way of their priests, which you call public servants. But that's what priests were, were public servants. But in Israel, in the kingdom of God, you pick the servant you trusted. He was going to distribute what you gave him amongst the people right there. Some of what you gave him would go up to the next minister that he had and they would distribute it to help the ten ministers that were had picked them. And some of that would go up and that's how you created this network of social welfare. I, I know a guy who thought he knew all about the Bible and he had to say certain words. He has a whole web page. We've talked about him before. That's kind of a Polish name. Polvac or whatever. You can probably look him up on our page. On our website. Because I wrote an article about Because he was bad-mouthing me. So, therefore, I I presented my case. And, of course, he says there's there's nothing in the Bible about a network. Well, tens, hundreds, and thousands is a network. And Moses had it and Jesus had it. Because they were both singing the same song, which is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And that song is about charity. It's not about 
the altars of Babylon or the altars of the dove goddess. And yeah, there are burnt offerings and sin offerings and heave offerings and wave offerings and meat offerings and grain offerings and trespass offerings and drink offerings. I always wonder, do you burn up a drink offering? <laughs> Peace offerings and sweet savers. And we have articles on all those and we're building those constantly because it's a big Bible and I've got to go through all of it. And I need to devote more and more time, but nobody donates to us hardly. <laughs> And, of course, we don't tell everybody send to us. We tell them to sit down the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And you send to your local minister, and then he can send up, and eventually it will get to us, hopefully. I mean, you can do what you want, because it's a free country, right? But uh, we want you to, this is why we created the network. You go to preparingyouorhisholychurch.org, and you can join the network, you know, I get calls. Every week I get calls from people. They can take up an hour. They can take up two hours. Well, if I get ten people that take up two hours apiece, that's 20 hours of my week is gone. Besides the fact that I lose my voice. <laughs> so, so, you can't do that. you you got to do it in a network. And it does. You, you, you don't put your minister that you choose up on a pedestal he takes that position because he's a servant of the people. And you need to do it because each of you must be servant of the people for the people and by the people if you're going to be a free country. You can change your leader from Biden to Trump. It's not going to change where you're headed and where you are, which is the bondage of Egypt. And it, that makes the work really easy for the Great Reset people. Because they don't care if you rebel. That they will, they have a plan for your rebellion. I mean, they had to goad those foolish people that were called now insurrectionists who went into the Capitol building. Uh, they weren't. They weren't breaking in. They weren't violent enough. And even the guys they sent there to break down the doors, you can see the people that were there stopped them. The guy who was telling everybody to go into the building. You have to go into the building. They started chanting, fed, 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 fed. Because <laughs> they knew he was a plant. So many of the guys knew. They're trying to get us to break the law. That's what they want you to do. They want you to rebel like the, like the zealots who ended up in Masada. All dead. Almost all dead. No. That... If you take up the sword, you die by the sword. What you have to do is take up righteousness. You have to seek righteousness. Just seek it out. Just search it out. Which is that word again. Tov, Vav, Resh. That is translated into turtle dove. It also means to seek out and search. So how come the same exact word for turtle dove is the same exact word for to seek? We're told to seek the kingdom of God. Of course, it's Greek. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, we're we're told that be joint heirs, which is succession of order, which is Tav, Vav, Resh again. Uh, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And this is one thing that they just don't seem to grasp in Jordan Peterson's symposium. Yes, there's a hierarchy in the kingdom of God, but it's not formulated by exercising authority one over the other. It's formulated by 
laying down your life one for another. In other words, it's a hierarchy of service. He who is greatest amongst you, that's rank, is he who serves. He who does the service to the people. That's how you get higher in rank in the hierarchy of the kingdom of God. Now, how you get hierarchy in the kingdoms of the world and the government of the United States, well, you get elected. You know, you become a congressman, then a senator, then a governor, then a president. And you take bribes. <laughs> because you created a government of authority that exercises authority one over the other. Because you are willing to take a bite out of one another. You can't do that. You have to repent of that. You have to go the other way. And so we are going to eventually talk about this strange fire. But we have to talk about fire itself. You know the exact nature of this strange fire. And, and we get this these guys, these sons of Aaron, you know, like burnt up. And we also have Dathan and Korah and all these guys ground, opening up and swallowing people. We also have water coming out of rocks. Just coming out of rocks. Nobody knows, oh, how did he do that? Well, the first time he struck it. second time he was supposed to speak to it, but he struck it anyway. But he also took credit for doing it. And the fact is, is that the credit, you know, if I see anything that's true, I see it because God has showed it to me. You know, if I see what is true, then you'll have to determine that. If you see what is true, you have to realize it's because God is showing you. And this is why, you know, when you're reading the Bible, you have to be reading it with the Holy Spirit. And tell me how in the world, you know, I always use the, the, uh, the analogy of, uh, you know, when this army came through and was, you know, killing all these uh, people and taking all these people captive in uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and all this stuff, one city state after another. How are they doing that? How was that coming about? That uh, they were able to... Uh, Take them apart. Well, they had organized themselves. They were probably in a system, a Nazi system, where they came through with their Blitzkrieg, and they just took Holland and Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, one after another. And then, of course, now, Germany failed, because the socialist FDR helped defeat him, with the help of all the people who were starting to become socialists themselves. Because they had gone from a system in the United States of social welfare through charity. Most of the public schools were supported by charity. Uh, most of the hospitals were supported by charity. Uh, a great many of the bridges were, you know, associations that built bridges and roadways and everything. It wasn't tax dollars that was doing this. It was people working together, like those people, you know, building 12-inch thick concrete walls up in Canada for their farm by manufacturing the cement and gravel. And then he had to mix it all. He had to carry water up 
and mix it all and pour these cement walls. He had to build forms to pour these. He didn't go down and get plywood at the local hardware to build these forms, but he had to build them out of concrete and to survive in that country. And when the book was written in the 1900s by my great-grandson, uh, the walls were still standing. <laughs> the barn was in rough shape, but the walls were still standing, and they were a bigger ranch and farm than they ever were before. But it brought them, that hard work and industry brought them to where they were at. And this is what the Israelites had to go through when they came out of Egypt, is they had to learn the skill of a free society. How how to provide those things you normally would get from a government that exercises authority, but now provide them from yourself. People want to create militias and, oh, well, you know, when they invade, you know, when they come for my guns, we'll fight them all off and everything. If you do not create a social safety net of faith through faith, hope, and charity, through coming together and volunteerism, you will not create a militia that will succeed against what's coming. If you create that system of social welfare through love and charity, you 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 will have God on your side, and you cannot fail. But that that is the choice that's before you. That is what Moses is talking about, and strange fire is whoring after the systems of the world. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to... Because, like I said, same word for fire, same word for wife. And right now, people are following the whore that rides the beast. That all the money that's given to those priests are not redistributed. If see, if you think that the altars, they're just burning them up. All this, you know, brought in the olive oil, brought in the meat offering, we brought this sheep, we just burned it up and everything. Yeah, they talk about entrails and all that kind of stuff and cleaning them and washing them and separating them. But what are they really talking about? And I've just given you just a little glimpse of some of these words. And of course there's all kinds of words like breaches and the word religion and the, and free will offering versus charity. It, and dainties of men who exercise authority. Dainties of rulers. What is that? That's the benefits of government that exercise authority. And Christ said not... So like I say, you can go to the New Testament. Christ said you're not to do that. Covetous practices will make you merchandise. And you... That's what happened when uh, the nephew of Abraham lived in Sodom as he became merchandise. And when somebody else came and stole that merchandise, those people, Abraham saved them. Not the king of Sodom didn't save them. He shows up later after all the fighting's done and he says, give me the people. Because he thinks this people as human resources. You give me the people, you have the stuff. I can make more stuff if I have the people. Well, they got you now. Because you're all Australia, uh, England, Russia, 
Venezuela, Scotland, the Baltics, Africa. You're all human resources in a worldwide bondage of Egypt. And Klaus Schwab is trying to break that to you. That you don't own anything. And he says you'll be happy. And if you're not happy, we have ways of making you happy. <laughs> or at least putting a smile on your face. Like the Joker. He has a smile on his face all the time. But this is, this is what's driving the world today towards the cliff of destruction is the fact that they've misinterpreted the Bible from beginning to end. And, and I, I'm shocked at how easily they misinterpreted Jesus Christ. And we've written reams about that, books available free online about it. But if you really want to understand it, you have to become a doer of the Word. I shared on Facebook, uh, somebody has done a study where people were suffering from depression, one group started taking counseling from psychologists or psychiatrists, anyway, counseling for their depression. And another group, without any counseling whatsoever, simply put themselves on an exercise regimen where they had to get out and do a certain amount of walking or a certain amount of exercise. The people who just exercised just went out and were doers of something. They showed 150% improvement. I mean, their, their improvement compared to those that just got the comparison of their improvement to those who just got counseling was one and a half times greater than the people who just got counseling. And that was just exercise. Now, can you believe if you started to exercise the charity of God, the actual taking the time to gather together in small groups that cared about themselves, knowing that part of what they donate will pass up to the next group. Just a small percentage of it will normally pass up to the next group and to the next group and to the next group. You're casting your bread upon the waters and eventually it, gets all the way up there and then that's called a heave offering because it was heaved up one to each group now each you know if if you give 10% up from all these ministers he, he equivalently got the mean of what everybody else got he's only going to pass up 10% of that that it's going to be more and more as it goes up, theoretically. But it isn't like you take 10% of what you earn and you send it up to the government. Of course, right now you're sending 20, 30% up. <laughs> to, or 50 or 60% if you count all the taxes. You're sending them up to the upper government and then they trickle it back down. But in the kingdom of God, it trickles up. It doesn't go up in these big, huge... Because with each succession of contributing through this hierarchy of service, those men are providing services and are taking care of the needy of those different groups. 
And all the social welfare of Christians, all the social welfare of early Israel was taken care of in this way. And it creates those social bonds so that people will drop everything and run to your aid when you really have a need. Because they've made a habit out of it. A religious habit. What you've done is that when you're crying in the street for help, people are shutting their shades. It's not my job. It's the government. I already gave. They do it with their own parents. Well, you get Social Security, don't you? So why should I help you out? You know, I've I got other things. I I, I got my boat payment. <laughs> you, you've divided the family. We've seen how that's destroyed the black community, but all families are divided. Right now, my my wife and granddaughter and daughter have gone down to take care of an elderly woman who got fully vaccinated and now has two forms of rapid growing cancers. Suddenly, uh, she she got uh, neuropathy first, just terrible. She couldn't hardly sleep and everything. But now she's developed two forms. And, of course, other people develop childhood diseases, etc. But they're down there taking care of them. And they're going to, volunteers in the community are going to take her up and have somebody else take care of her up uh, Important, actually, the person who called at the beginning of the show. <laughs> That's why she was calling. She's making arrangements. We should be doing that all across the nation because the government ain't going to be there for you. But until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. See you on the network. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.